Here we go. Coffee's in. Good to go. Hello and welcome to the CS Duplicy Show. A big shout out to our proud partners at Betway. Check out betway.co.za for more information. Catch 2 million rand at the Betway SA20, Game of Zones. All the information is there. Check out betway.co.za. Now, it gives me great pleasure. I'm such a huge fan. Ray, my executive producer, is a huge fan. He is, from, in my humble opinion, South Africa's most credible rugby journalist. And that's said with all due respect, <laughs> Brendan Nell. But we've gone back a long way to those days at Loftus yeah. when I was still at Tux FM back in the day. Um, you've taught me a lot along the way. I, I respect you wholeheartedly. I think when it comes to a rugby voice, you are number one in the country. And that goes out to all the other rugby journals with all due respect. And also you field calls from all over the world. I mean, New Zealand love calling you whenever there's anything rugby related. Uh, the UK, all over the world... Thanks for your time, Brendan. How are things going? Good, thanks. You guys make me sound a lot better than I would describe myself. <laughs> so. Just don't sell yourself short, my man. It's uh, Honestly, your work is is uh, superb and you always make yourself available to us. So thank you so much. We really appreciate your, your time and your friendship. So thanks. And congratulations, ladies and gentlemen. <coughs> yes, it's out at all good bo- bookstores and... And bad ones as well. Although <laughs> <laughs> well, no, 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 I wouldn't say which of those are. No, so. no, let's leave it at that. But uh, Brendan, congratulations. Derek Hochart, the Vada Sturdy from the Liefling Fund Loftus. Um, congrats, man. How how did this all come about? Let's start there, Brendan. Um, well, I mean, this wasn't the book I expected to write. Okay. Uh, uh, to be very honest, I mean, I obviously met Derek when he arrived at Loftus. I'd followed his career. I probably lost touch with him when he went overseas and – when he became more of a feature on sort of the U Hayes Canoot sort of pages than he did in the rugby pages. Uh, it's not really stuff I really follow too much. I mean, I would see a headline here or there. Uh, but then uh, a lady by the name of Carla Kutsia, a friend of mine, uh, she's, she works for NB Publishers, Tafelberg, and she asked me, would I be interested in writing? And my initial reaction was, I don't think there's really a book here. Um, what has the guy really done? And yeah. then... We started talking about it, and the more we spoke about it, the more I realized there is actually a deeper story. And I started speaking to some of his friends, and and then I started speaking to him, and initially he was going to be part of the book. Um, and then suddenly he just disappeared off the scene for a month. And I later realized um, part of that was because he was his problems with addiction, and he, he just wasn't in a state to talk to people. And he does this quite a lot. Uh, and by that stage, we'd already done quite a bit of research and I'd, I'd committed to the book and I'd signed a contract. And so we decided to go ahead with it either way. So, um, yeah, and I think I hope when people do read it, they realize it's not because I think the initial reaction for a lot of people is, why would you do a book without the guy? Um, I think there's a story to tell then, a story that probably affects a lot of people, anybody who's known somebody with addiction. And it also shows that people that we idolize, people that are stars, superstars in the field also have very, very complicated personal lives as yeah. well. So I've tried I've tried not to throw him under the bus. I've tried to be very fair with him. Um, I think that's what I've done. I hope so. I hope people see that. Um, without giving too much away, give us a little tidbit, maybe one just to whet the appetite. <laughs> well, uh, I think the one, the one that uh, stood out to me was, uh, you know, everybody has has sort of, 
um, problems in their marriages and and things like that. But um, a lot of the time, I went into this because because I obviously sided maybe a bit with, more with Derek in, in the start of the book. His uh, marriage to Caroline von Jarsfeld, the the pop singer. Um, a lot of the stories I read in my research sounded a bit vindictive from her side, and I sort of thought, geez, yeah, I know there's always two sides yeah. to any divorce, and 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 dirty laundry is dirty laundry. But and when I started looking into it and the stuff that happened, I, I mean, there was there was one night. There's a story in the book. There's one night where Derek went to go fetch Caroline from a concert. Uh, he'd been drinking. He'd been had several pills, according to the people that told me. And um, when they they got into an argument on the way home, and he just lost it, and he said, "Okay," and he grabbed the steering wheel and said, "Okay, now I'm going to drive us into a, a, a pole." And very lucky not to have rolled the car. That's the one story. Then other things they've they've got obviously lovely twins that they had, um, and who I feel probably the, the the whole thing I think in the future for Derek is if he can become father for those twins again mm-hmm. because he doesn't really play that much of a role in their lives at the moment. But uh, you know, we, the, the addiction became so bad that there were stories of Colleen going to fetch the twins from his house. He lives in an estate. He's got a swimming pool. The twins are two years old. And when she go, gets there, she they, he's so high on these pills, he can't even open the, the security gate at the front of the door because he's just just not in state to do it. And, mm. they, and you, any parent just has to think about Absolutely. all the things that yeah. can go wrong in the house and with the swimming pool. And so, yeah, there, there's some really bad addiction stories, but there's some good stuff as well. Some stories about his t- Springbok teammates who talk about things like Comstaldrot, how he became the sensation overnight. This 19-year-old that broke Nas Buitas' record. So I think in a nutshell, what I said when the launches is that if you're looking for a rugby book, there's enough rugby in the book. Yeah. And if you look, if you're the type of person who reads the U, high school type articles, there's enough of that stuff as well. And I think all in all, it's a all-encompassing, probably tragic story. But and I think that the, I think the, probably the most unsatisfying part of it is because when you write a book, you hope that you can have this ending. Yeah. That yeah, you know, the, the Hollywood ending that the guy stands up and he does his thing. But that's all in Derek's hands now. I mean, we at the stage we had to worry that when he landed in a coma in hospital. What would happen if he didn't make it, and how would that affect the book? And I'm not sure the book would have come out then. Yeah. But um, at the moment, it's in his hands, and yeah. I really hope he stands up from it. I mean, you, you touched on it. He was a phenomenal talent at 19 years old. Here's this guy who's suddenly cast into the spotlight. You know, I, I think of the the Brian Lima tackle in 2003 as one of those things. But what a gifted rugby player, yeah. and obviously a troubled soul. Yeah, look, I mean, he didn't grow up in, in, in the greatest circumstances. I don't say he's he's it's come out now. I didn't include it in the book, but, um, but his dad str- struggled with um, alcohol addiction. Uh, I didn't feel at that stage it was necessary to put it that much in the book because, you know, the book's about him, not about yeah. his family as such. And, I mean, it's easy to blame. I wanted to catalogue his journey more than anything. And um, – he was a sensational player at school. I mean, Skolk Berger, who everyone knows is one of the best rugby players in the world, talks about a game that they played, Paul Kim against um, Willan Lampo, where Derek literally, he said, he said they, they told the forwards after the first kickoff, they kicked long, Derek got the ball from 60 metres out, dropped through the post, and then he told them to kick short, and the kick short from the, got the ball dropped again. Eventually, they didn't know what to do. And Skulk, uh, and Skulk knew him from obviously from a young age, and he says he's just the most phenomenal play he'd ever seen. I, he was the most 
talented raw talent player yeah. I've ever seen in my life. Mm. It's a, a sad fall from grace, and like you said, it's now in Derek's hands. Available now. Please check it out. Um, yeah, Brendan, writing. Did you enjoy? I mean, you've always been writing, but. Articles on rugby, Oscar Pistorius, which we'll touch on, to, <laughs> yeah. to writing a book. Um, how, was, how was the experience for you? Because I, I think it's, it's commitment, right? It's commitment. Uh, yeah, I think people don't realize that from when you start a book till you finish, and I didn't realize this as well because obviously this is my first book. Um, it takes about a year from start to the moment you start till about where you see it on the shelves or when it arrives at your house in that form. So um, it was a labor of love, and that's a lot of giving up weekends, evenings, because um, we've all got nine to five jobs. Yeah. So it's a lot of those things and seeing people, and I had people who promised to meet me and they wouldn't pitch up, and then I had people that you know, didn't want to talk because they'd given up on Derek already and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, they, I've, I've been accused by other people of being sensationalist and why, why am I doing the book without him? Um, you get all these different types of reactions that you get. and But at the end of the day, uh, it's, other than that, just the subject matter itself is a, is a roller coaster of emotions because like anyone in addiction, you start off um, with, with a book and there's the highs of the rugby and then it goes through the lows of the addiction and his divorce and his kids. And, and you get irritated at times because of some of the decisions he makes, yeah. like any human being. I mean, and then at other times you, 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 you're euphoric for what he can achieve. And he was one of these guys, he doesn't live down here, one of his friends told me, he lives up there and everything he has to do is up there. And that was part of the problem. And then that when he lost his rugby and didn't do, I make the point in the book that Mornay Stone, who started the Loftus a year after Derek, probably achieved everything that Derek wanted. Mornay played 70-odd um, tests, 300-odd first-class games, two British and Lions, uh, Irish Lions tours, which he won for the Springboks. Uh, Derek played eight tests in total. It was over by his time he was 25, 26. So, um, yeah, he never got to finish off and write his own ending. Yeah. And I think that contributed a lot. And then, obviously, other personal problems, and it just sort of snowballed from there. Oh, it's really sad, <coughs> but congratulations on the book. Uh, I hope this is the first of many, Brendan. Yeah, there's there's a couple in the pipeline. Um, I've I've been talking to one or two, but I can't say anything just yet. No, that's but, fair. That's fair. But yeah, um, I, I think though the next the next book I want to do is a bit different to this. Okay. Um, first of all, I think it must be in English. Um, I felt I found with this one there was a large, well, a reasonably large part of the audience that sort of asked me why it wasn't in English. And, and that was a decision of the publishers, and I respect that. But um, I think the next one has to be in English, and I think because uh, it would just be a wider audience. And there's one or two uh, I've sort of spoken to. Uh, I, I'm, I think to, to, it's going to sound sunny, funny saying it, but I don't really – I don't want to do the average rugby biography. Yeah. Um, and with no disrespect, the – John Smith, Victor Madfields, those guys that are always in the limelight and you see on Supersport every week. Yeah. I don't want to do that type. I want to do somebody who's got a good story. And there's one or two there, but they also the difficult ones to get to sign on. So we're working on that. No, we wish you all the best. We can't wait to see that. But I, I think for me, as a rugby scribe, you know, rugby is in your DNA and, and writing is in your DNA. And, and you actually answered my question because when I saw it, I was like, this is Afrikaans when I picked it up. And then... I realized, hang on a second, the target market yeah. is going to be Afrikaans. But I don't see why this can't be translated into English one day. 
Well, or even an audio book, who knows? Well, I think that all gets to. Dependent on the uh, sales of the thing, I yeah. think that's what drives it. And yeah, the book markets, there are economics uh, in it as well. So I understand that, and I, 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 uh, I sort of let the publishers do that part of it. So, oh, congratulations anyway. Yeah, thank so, you. Uh, and I hope you sell millions of copies. <laughs> I also hope so. <laughs> Go buy the book if you have it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Brendan, before we um, move forward, where did your love for rugby start? And, and when did you f- write your first rugby article? <laughs> Jeez, I'm trying to think now. Um, it's weird. I think as most kids in this country, I had a love for sport. I wasn't that good at primary school. I was pretty decent in my little local panorama primary school in, in Valterfriend Park in Joburg. Um, I was pretty decent. Um, I played primary school first teams and things like that. Got to high school, and, and the, when the when the levels started going up and the guys started getting a bit more professional, uh not not very good. Um, didn't have much of a career, um, but yeah, I just always loved the game. I grew up like a lot of South African kids. Uh, yeah, I remember the 80, 1981 All Black tour, getting up three o'clock in the morning to watch it. Um, I remember in particular uh, the game against Waikato, uh, which was which the protesters. There was a whole lot of protests in that game. They took the field. They threw. Uh, pins and glass and stuff on the field so they couldn't play and I was as nine year old I was livid that uh, you know I don't care what they're protesting against yeah. I want to watch the rugby and I had a, I was lucky enough to have a father who took me to Ellis Park a lot uh, we used to sit in front of Jimmy Abbott okay um, always got on TV that was the one thing because the TV <laughs> would always focus on him it was hard to although miss Jimmy him. Abbott took up yeah. quite a bit of the screen <laughs> and he was quite a character yeah. uh, I, 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 it was quite funny I managed a couple of years ago as uh, a friend of both of ours, Vessel Urstays, and they published a book as well. And Jimmy was at his book launch. And I, I met him. I told him the stories. And he was a fantastic character. Uh, I must admit, it was nice sitting and having a beer with him and talking about that as yeah. well. But, um, yeah, and it just carried on from there. And I think uh, you know, when, when I got to Varsity, I was lucky enough to be at Varsity with a really great um, Rao team. was Rao at that stage. Uh, UJ nowadays, um, but it was a team with Francois Pinar and Yarpi Mulder and Henny the Roo and all these guys who went on to become the 95 World mm-hmm. Cup squad. And I knew quite a few of them. I then, I actually got into journalism by accident. I, um, I sort of, I started, uh, I had a, at that stage, friend stroke, girlfriend stroke, whatever, varsity fling, who asked me to be, uh, sort of writing a match report for the route team, which I did. And, um, yeah, from there, the local, the Northcliffe Melville Times had a job. I applied. They gave me the job. I still remember the managing editor still said to me, it was the most uncomfortable she's ever seen somebody in a suit. <laughs> and uh, I think that's, yeah, to today, I mean, I'm not a guy known to dress I up as well. I don't think I've ever seen you in a tie. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I know, in fact, shorts and T-shirts are my thing. So. But yeah, um, and then from there on, just I got a lucky break. I, I, I applied uh, after about two years of doing Everything at the Caxton Group, uh, from 80th birthday, city council meetings, young Dharma's dynamic meetings. I used to do all of it. You potholes and you do all those type of stories, the local <laughs> stories. A great learning school. And then I applied to be at the Citizen at, as an athletics writer. Got there, got the job. Um, and then the Monday that I started, the Friday before that, the rugby writer, uh, Peter Kruger, uh, resigned. And it was a week or two before the 96 All Blacks tour. And I walked into the scene with Chris Wannapool, the uh, sports editor, and Johnny Johnson, the editor, having an argue, argument and sort of shouting at each other. I just went to a corner and found a seat and waited because it was the first day on the job. 
And the whole thing ended with, who are you going to send? Well, I'll send the new guy. And <laughs> a couple of weeks later, I was on the tour. So uh, I just had an extremely lucky break. And yeah, from there on, it's just been rugby, rugby, rugby. So That's amazing. Uh, it's am- my fondest, well, one of my earliest memories as a young student walking into Loftus and that media tribune or whatever area you want to call it was quite intimidating because all, all the heavyweights were there and yeah. Matlatsi um, and me walked in there sort of the younger guys and there was Brendan Nell, there was uh, JJ, De Jong, there was Vata, there was um, um, Marius, was it uh, Marius? Yeah, back in the day. Yeah, I think it was Marius. Yeah. Mar- I mean, I just remember and I'm like, I'm this, this kid from Vasti Radio who's basically you know, watching all you guys. And well, I learned a lot from you because the way you guys did the press conferences and conducted yourselves in the conversations in the press box really, I think, shaped my thinking as to how to report about sport. Well, it was interesting because I also, I, I came into, when I got to Pretoria in 97, um, it was very much the same sort of thing. I was the youngster uh, by far. I mean, that time they had the infamous Quintus van Royen, um, who was the ultimate Bluebells writer at that stage. Um, scary fact, I realized the other day I've been at Loftus uh, longer than Quintus. It's actually scary, <laughs> scary thought that. you know the scary guy. Yeah. The I think things have changed a bit. But yeah. then we had Neil Stain there and Johan Falskenk, and these were guys who'd been in the, in the game for 25 years yeah. already and, and had been at the Bulls for that time. Yeah. So everybody knew them. They were part of the furniture. And I was yeah. this youngster. I was English. Back then it was a huge thing, the English thing. Um, I still, I still, tell, I went uh, a little story from that first week I was there. Uh, John Williams was the coach. He invited me out for lunch at the Loftus restaurant, which is in, uh, which no longer exists. Um, but I thought, okay, well, let me go get to know the guy. Maybe it's his way of reaching out, etc. And so, so you go out there and um, have a lovely lunch. We talk, etc. And he says, look, he's going off to practice. The guys are assembling. He'll see me now at the field. And I said, okay. And he walked away. And next thing they came with the bull. And it was a rather expensive <laughs> restaurant. I think the bill was something like at that stage. We're talking about ninety-seven. Was something like six, seven hundred rand. <laughs> and I think I was earning around two and a half thousand rand a month. So, I mean, that was basically my rent pay for the month. And I just thought, and and it was their way of sort of okay, Engelsman, yeah. this is the way we we teach you. Uh, okay. So luckily, uh, the Pretoria News at that stage said they'll pay the bill. And <laughs> I was very relieved. But yeah, it, it was a good introduction to the way Pretoria rugby politics works. Do you have a, a fond memory of your career, that a highlight sort of? Um, obviously, we've won World Cups. We've won <coughs> Super Rugby titles with various teams. Well, one team. Um, do you have a fond memory that stands out for you where you were like, wow, this is this is, this is is truly something cool? I think I've, I've had a number, but I think just two probably I'll, I'll, I'll mention. Well, I could keep you busy the whole show. Uh, oh, we've all the time in the day. Yeah. And I think it's quite apt we've got Brendan on a public holiday that has been recognized by our our president <laughs> on uh, the box winning the World Cup, yeah, so 15 no. December. Look, it, it, I think uh, on that, our president copped out a bit because it's yeah. the easy option. We all wanted the public holiday weeks ago, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but we get it now. But saying that, it is a day that a lot of people often, that's good. But uh, if to return to the highlight, I think probably two, two stand out for me. Um, one, one was in 1998. Uh, I was covering, it was one of my first years of covering the Blue Bulls um, sort of solely as the main reporter for Pretoria News. And uh, I, I remember going, and it's, it's a little bit of a story, because I remember going to a Vodacom Cup game in Valcom. 
uh, and I didn't really want to drive. So Chris Batendach, who was the Vodacom coach at that stage, said, come along with a bus. And so I drove with the Bulls to the game. And on the way back, obviously the guys in the back of the bus having a couple of beers, I joined them, etc. And it was, I remember Jacques Willifir, Andre Sneiman and uh, Gustav Jafter, the three of them. I had long hair at that stage. I was, uh, uh, in fact, my hair was probably down by my shoulders by that stage. Um, and I was seen as this Wilde Engelsman. You know? <laughs> so they, they're giving me a lot of shit. And, um, and, and I remember at, at some point after several beers on that bus, um, I think it was Jacques Willifir who said to me, Engelsman, Let's cut your hair. And I said to them, win the fucking curry cup. Yeah. I'm not sure if we can swear on your podcast, can we? <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> anyway, so, and, and uh, yeah, and then so, so the season went on, and they were last in Super Rugby, and they were last in the Vodacom Cup, so I didn't really fear much. And then came the 98 season, and they, they got Yurst back, and uh, they started they started winning, and they started moving up, and and next thing you knew, they were in the semifinals and uh, or quarterfinals, and they won against the odds. Came back, I still remember against Natal, and and you scored a try right at the end to give them. Uh, semifinals also won against the odds, and then we're suddenly in this final against the star-studded Western <laughs> Province team: Bob Skinstead, Corny Kricher, Chester Williams, Brayton Paul. So all these guys. And a couple of weeks earlier, that same team had given them forty points, and. I still remember it's quite quite weird. It was quite a weird week because I mean, Carrick build up weeks are, are full of stories and you work your your butt off. But on the Friday, I got a call from Conrad Breitenbach, who was the the playing wing that week, who was a scrum off, and he said, "Listen, the sponsors have given me this BMW Z3, um, which was new on the market yeah. at that stage." And he says, "I've got a Carrick final. I can't do anything. Do you want to come fetch the car?" Oh, Jesus, a player, I didn't know players do this yeah. and players get this. I was like, you know, stunned. Anyway, I went to fetch the car and I used it for the weekend, etc. And <laughs> the next day, obviously, the Bulls, Conrad scored the first try, tore his knee ligament in the, in the process of scoring the try. Um, but the Bulls won. And as the final whistle, went, I was still typing up my report and two security guards were behind me. And the first thing they said, to, the whole week they'd been taunting me, we're going to cut your hair, you're going to cut your hair. And they literally took me down. And they didn't have a, a shaver. They had scissors. <laughs> and so I've still got all these pictures. I've, I've got one picture at home of you standing next to me with all these holes in my head as the scissors had cut. <laughs> of you standing with a bunch of my hair in his hands like that. I got to, I, That night I got to drink out the curry cup, um, okay. which is still it's in my bar at the moment, uh, that picture. And, and that was a memory that I, think, I don't think many people have. And it was really something special. So that team, because they shouldn't have won that curry cup. Yeah. Uh, there was, in fact, there was a forward pass to Chester that Andre Watson called that still gets debated to this day. Okay. <laughs> so that's the one. And very shortly, the other one, the 2007 World Cup. Um, uh, myself and JJ Haram said, struggled to get out of the start front. So we just won the World Cup. We were in such good spirits. Uh, the trains had stopped. It was one o'clock in the morning. Uh, we saw this British couple that were sort of um, getting very well acquainted with each other. Um, in fact, they, they sort of got into a taxi and they went. So we jumped in the taxi with them. They didn't even know we were in the taxi. They were so into each other. Um, and But we got a lift back in and with one or two other journalists went out for a couple of drinks. And then we ended up at the team hotel um, that morning. Um, and that was something special still to me. I wasn't, I wasn't lucky enough to be at 2019 or this time in 2023, but um, yeah, they special nights, those nights, and when you will win a World Cup, and you see what it means to the players, you see what it means to South Africa, and that's it's still an amazing part. And I think any any rugby fan will probably tell you one of those four rugby wins is probably one of their best favourites. Um, a lot has been said 
2019 surprise, but 2023 expected from the box. Do you agree with that sentiment um, that they were ahead of schedule in 2019? They were definitely ahead of schedule in 2019. I think uh, 2019 they got the luck of the the draw a bit. Hmm. There was some, I mean, the fact that they lost in New Zealand and the fact that Ireland and Scotland sort of blew themselves out of the competition against Japan. And and I think you know it's easy to say that, but Japan was still a huge team for us to play after 2015, after they beat us. So there was huge psychological for us. So I think they were ahead of schedule in 2019 and wonderful. The way they won that final was amazing. I mean, and those two tries will stick in every, all our yeah. memories for the rest of our lives, um, especially with Owen Farrell on his backside. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, the, in 2023, I think... I think we thought they could do it. We know if you're close enough to the team and you see their determination and the level of detail they put into everything that they do, it's amazing. And and you can see why these guys are the best in the world. The The thing that that had never been done in this World Cup was winning, beating the top four, five, six teams in succession to win the World Cup. And I think that was the big success this time is that we knew they could do it, but whether they could do it five no- weekends in a row type yeah. thing is the story. And I mean, one-point victories is one point is one point. And obviously the All Blacks are still complaining. <laughs> but yeah, they always complain. So I mean, they're still complaining about Susie in 1995. <laughs> you, you go talk to the guys. Uh, their radio shows, obviously, I speak to them a lot. Um, they love bringing it up. But it's, uh, to them, it's also, it's this bit of banter. Yeah. Um, I don't think they, they're that serious. They're not, they're not bitter. You'll get bitter fans, obviously. But the people we speak to, are, you know, it's a bit of a joke. They love, love rubbing you a bit with it, and, and that's fine. Um, Brendan, uh, looking at this this box squad at the moment, um, there's also a feeling that the next World Cup, they could well win this and go three in a row. How do you feel about I mean, do you think that the way they play at the moment, do you think that physicality, looking at the age group, it's a bit of an older squad? I know Andre's still young. Um He's definitely got another World Cup in him. You've got a Kenan Moody who's such an exciting talent. But what do you make of the future? And, and considering that, you know, Jacques left now, Rossi kind of is overseeing matters until 2025. What do you sort of foresee in the future now going to the next World Cup? I think there's a couple of challenges there. The, the first one being um, obviously the coaching. Uh, when does a coach stay too long? And with and this is with all respect to Rossi, he's done an absolutely amazing job. But everything has a limit um, in sport, and I think Rossi's you know wise enough to know when to step away. The other thing is who takes over from Rossi. And now what we hear so far is Dion Davids or Ms. Wandele stick. And my only concern there, they're both exceptional coaches. But I know how this country works. I know how the madness around, say the madness around the poison chalice that's the Springbok coaching job works. Uh, I've seen great coaches go gray almost overnight with a job with the stress. Uh, and they both coaches who haven't really come through, or Dion more than Ms. Wandile, but they haven't come through the ranks of, of coaching a, a URC team, um, you know, walking that whole walk. Now, it's not necessarily necessary to do that. But also the way this country works is that the first moment something goes wrong, people are going to do that. And I, I, and I point to uh, Ian Foster. Thing. When your assistant becomes – Steve Hansen's assistant became coach, you, lose the, you saw the pressure that happened in New Zealand on him. As yeah. such. And in the end, they weren't a bad team at the World Cup. They didn't win the World Cup, but they were very close. Yeah. But that's the type of thing I worry about on the coaching side. On the playing side, 
Look, we've got lots of players. I think a lot depends on how rugby tinkers with its laws in the next couple yeah. of years, how the red card scenarios play out, and those all those things bring their own pressure in any game. Uh, I think we've got the players no matter what, but I think in certain, I'm worried that in certain positions, we're probably going to be a, a World Cup too far for some of the guys. Yeah. Plus, you've got that natural thing of of I've won World two World Cups, so what's a third? Yeah, is the motivation still there for a lot of those players? I think there's a lot of young, hungry players here. And one thing that we don't give Jacques and them a lot of credit for is that game against Wales where they played 18 different guys is how those guys are going to come through in the next couple of years. That next – and that's what I'm wanting, wanting to see. And I know some of the names we, we, that will be in that team we haven't even met yet. Yeah. So um, hopefully that's what we see in the next couple of um, – Years and, and and we build a team around that. The one thing Rossi and Jacques did very well over the last six years is make the Springboks everything. So um, in previous years, for various reasons, you know, administrators would get involved or things like that. But now the main thing is the main things, yeah. to quote that phrase. And and the Springboks get everything that they want. And if we can continue that, we're going to have to evolve. Rugby evolves all the time. Other teams are going to catch up to us. They're going to get better. So we're going to have to do a lot of that. We're going to have to get that right mix of players. And I think the one thing Rossi and them did very well was it's not necessarily the best players that get picked. It's the right mix of players. Yeah. And I think in a team aspect like the Springboks, that makes a huge difference. Um, I mean, case in point, you look at fly half, I think we're light in fly half. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think Andre is world class, but always, whenever he runs onto the park, you're wondering if he's going to hit it a shot because of the physicality that, it, that he yeah. brings. Uh, Marnie, I think, did exceptionally well considering the situation, but he's probably not our, our first pick, number 10, or maybe number two. But a guy like Sia Khaleesi, who is exactly what you said, he might he's a phenomenal rugby player. He might not be the best in his position in the country, but what he brings yeah. as a leader, as a guy who gives 150% each time he runs on the park, next World Cup might be one too far for him. I think it probably is. I think Sia's body, uh, I mean, look, he's, he's going to be the first one to laugh at me when I say this, but I mean, um, but I think if you see the battering he takes after a game, uh, I think that eventually catches up with you. Um, maybe he does, maybe he proves us all wrong, but I think we are going to, I think Sia's probably destined for bigger things yeah. um, off the rugby field and with whatever form that takes, but uh, I don't think we're going to, I think we're going to have to have a new captain. Yeah, I think also the fact that Sia likes to um, keep us on tenterhooks and then surprise us and, and rock up and play after which looked like a season-ending knee injury. Um, it wouldn't surprise me, but I, I do agree, I think. But you look within that leadership group, you know, the Ibans, um, the Andres, all these yeah. guys that are in the mix, their bongi stepped up. Um, there's definitely a leadership group that we can pick an individual from to do the captains yeah and there, there'll be more players that come through in this in yeah. this time as well that's the other thing i mean as i said i mean we no, none of us saw four years ago kane and moody coming through yeah uh, kurt the orange so, so there, there will be those players with cameron honeycomb at the bulls now who's been the sensation so the sasha feinberg and gumzulu as well i mean th those young players are going to come through and we're going to see more of them come through and uh hopefully they they you know that blend because that mix of youth and experience is, is crucial almost. Um, I think one of the people that we're going to have to probably replace, uh, which Damien Willemse is doing a job in replacing, but Vili's influence on that team, 
people don't give him enough credit for. Yeah. But and what he does behind the scenes, that's the type of guy you're going to miss a lot more. And Sia's the guy in front of the cameras a lot of the time. But Sia feeds off the other guys as well. Yeah. And then that's not to minimize Sia's role in Absolutely. any way. Um, out of interest, uh, look, <coughs> looking ahead to sort of, we've got Ireland coming here. I mean, that's a blockbuster series. Huge. Um, I suppose building up to that, they will be looking at other names on the periphery, bringing them into the mix, you know, with alignment camps as they've done so well in the past. I think probably we're going to see very much close to. I don't think they'll bring too many guys in, okay. unless uh, yeah. They they that's the one thing about the box. They often get a people don't quite understand the times, and I say I'm, I'm not being flippant when I say this, but a lot of times that also goes. They 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 watch the players in other ways. So a lot of times the emotional state, the what's going on at home, has the guy got problems with his wife? Is yeah. he got financial problems? Things like that. We all get these things. Mm -hmm. Rugby players are no different. And so often if they don't play a player, it's because of one of those reasons. Or they feel he's not able to give 100%. Yeah. So I, I think that if they have their choice, they'll probably play very much close to the World Cup winning okay. team. Um, and and anyway, mostly from that World Cup squad. I I don't think we're going to see too many guys from outside that World Cup squad for the Ireland test. Yeah. Portugal, the, the Portuguese test, I think we'll see yeah. uh, a lot of new faces. Or should I say a lot of outside the World Cup type faces. But also not that many. Um, I think they'll they'll start blooding players as they go through the end of year tour and things like that for over the next couple of years. It's exciting times for SA rugby. Yeah, I mean the the, the whole thing of this. Uh, Russia and them also made that four year schedule. Uh, yeah, that the, the cycle uh, redundant. So I mean, if we, th we look now, we normally say okay, it's the start of a new cycle. But in 20, 2019, they did it in eighteen months, and yeah. twin and this last one they lost a year. Because of COVID and then the Lions tour, uh, with all that those complications, so uh, yeah, they also lost two years there. So they've done incredibly well. Um, but what you what you see now is, especially in the north, the northern hemisphere sides are a lot more professional. Mm. They they they've got the money, most of them, um, to get the expertise in, and so our raw talent is not necessarily enough. We we need to be on par on that, that intelligence yeah. around the game. Yeah. And we've got that with Russ and Jacques, but with Jacques now gone, who replaces him, that's that's the entire question. And that we could, we'll only find out in a couple of months' time. Interesting. We'll, we'll follow you on social media because I'm sure there'll be a scoop or an article. What do you make of this talk of the box playing in the Six Nations? Is, is there any sort of... I mean, we've seen us playing in... You know, um, URC and Champions Cup and all these different things, it's not so far-fetched, is it? it? It isn't, but I still think there's a couple of obstacles there. There is a lot of – when you talk about the European club competitions, um, I think they acknowledge what we bring to the table. We've got great uh, viewership yeah. figures. We've got big stadiums. Uh, yeah. In fact, I mean, the URC and uh, aren't, aren't used to – a Bullstormers derby getting 30,000 people, and that's the norm yeah. for a Bullstormers derby, whereas most of the grounds up north are 10,000, 15,000 seaters. So in terms of that, in terms of what the eyeballs that South Africa brings to the whole broadcasting deal, et cetera, there's a lot of positives. But when it comes to the Six Nations, I think, I think it is still a natural progression. We will get there. But I think there's a lot more um, resistance from the traditionalists. And unfortunately, in those four home nations, there are a few traditionalists yeah. still around. Uh, I think rugby's changing. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure the Six Nations are going to stay like the Six Nations um, still because we've got this whole new Test Championship League that's coming in. 
how that fits into that. I'm not sure if it's even necessary that we yeah. join the Six Nations. Then. If they sort out the global calendar, I think we would rather prefer, um, just from a purely rugby standpoint, to still play the All Blacks. I think we the money and obviously the, the revenue that playing in the North brings is a huge draw card. Mm. But um, we're going to have to see how they do that global um, competition. Of course, there's also drawbacks to that global competition as well because, as we saw and it was discussed in the World Cup, is a team like Portugal, Georgia, um, Samoa, if you're not in the 10 teams that are going to, going to um, you know, be on that competition, then you only get a chance to play the Tier 1 nations in 2030 through promotion relegation. That's if wow. there is promotion relegation yeah. then because you could easily see a situation where somebody like England or Ireland have a bad season and, and finish last and they've got to play promotion relegation, suddenly it gets scrapped. Yeah. Uh, we see it in the English Premiership game, uh, and we've seen it in, in other times as well. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where the future of that is going, and I think that's they need to sort out the global calendar and they need to make it fair because at the moment rugby, if they're going to go look inward and just keep it between 10 nations, the game's never going to grow. It's a, it's a limited amount of resources. Could you ever see... I mean, Super Rugby played such a huge part for so long. Could you ever see us being in some shape or form involved there again? You know, like, or do you think this north-south, northern hemisphere thing is pretty much the way of the future? I think we, not for the next 20 years, I don't think. Okay. I think we've committed ourselves to that. Um, okay. We're paying to get into the competition, so otherwise we're wasting money um, yeah. by doing that. So I don't think that happens. I think if, if anything might happen, it might be, for a team like the Cheetahs or the Pumas or something like that, if finding them a competition like that. Um, I, I don't think, I mean, geographically it's never really worked, the time differences. And we, we mustn't also, Australia wanted us out the competition. New Zealand wanted us out the competition. New Zealand now realise um, you know, that they need us. Um, yeah. That's why at the moment there's talks going on and, and it's probably going to be finalised in the next few months. At the same time, the Lions tour Australia that we might have an all-black tour coming to South Africa for three tests. Oh, wow. So there's 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 talks of, of sort of in some form getting back proper tours um, between the all-blacks yeah. and where they come here for seven or eight games, play the franchises, and then play three test series. And uh, uh, that's a dream. I mean, uh, to me, that's what I grew up on, 1981. Yeah. I was lucky enough to be the 96 tours as well where we lost those tours, that test series. But... Those are the those test series are enthralling, and and still and today, I mean, <laughs> back to nineteen eighty one. I was lucky enough to be with um, Keith Quinn, who was the commentator in nineteen eighty one, and it's also a legend. legend. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And he was telling me how they tried to kidnap him in the protesters, oh. and, <laughs> and and we were one night in in, in twenty eleven at the World Cup with in uh, Pukekohe Rugby Club, I think it was, where Alan Hewson, who kicked the winning goal against us in nineteen eighty one, still a very controversial penalty that was given. Uh, was telling us about that. And that was the infamous flower bomb test. Yes. Where the plane was overhead dropping. And and how, what it was like. He, I mean, he had us all sitting on the edge of our seats telling us stories that night. That's what rugby's about. And yeah. we need to get that back again into us. These one-off games, they're great for viewership. But, you know, we often say as journalists, if I ask you what happened two weeks ago in the URC, would you actually know? No, you yeah, not so, really know, exactly. And it's a different world and it's a yeah. different rugby game, et cetera. But, You've got to give context. Lions tours have context because they've got meaning. They've got there's an entire thing around them. I can tell you what happened in every test, probably the last three Lions tours because I did them, I covered them. But 
you tell me what happened between South Africa and New Zealand three tests ago, I'm going to struggle. Yeah. I'll probably, if you remind me, you remember. But <laughs> but the point is, if there's too many of these tests and they're meaningless, then yeah. Yeah, it dilutes everything, doesn't yeah. it? Um, Brendan, now you've obviously, I mean, most of your career, if not all your career, have been as rugby scribe. You've now ventured into the world of YouTube and podcasting yourself. How's that, how's that coming along? Because, I mean, it's done so well over... Rugby World Cup, your numbers have been amazing. Have you enjoyed the podcast space? Uh, something to get used to. The podcasts are a lot easier, I think, than doing your own YouTube. Um, having a conversation like this is great. Yeah. Um, and my podcast, mate, Liam Delcom, uh, we have a lot of fun with the podcast. We we, we, we do it. Um, it's called To The Last Drop. It's it's rugby and wine. So there's always... Great combination. Yeah, exactly. So you can always... And that's a nice thing because you disarm guests as well because you say to them, you're talking this serious rugby point, but when last did you open a bottle of wine? And what, what wine? And you just see how they change. Oxen Chair told us the other day that he's a cognac ad- addict. I just thought it was cake. But then <laughs> I could just see Ox with the cognac and the cake Absolutely, together. And, yeah. And so, I mean, it's that type of thing that it's, it's lovely to do. Um where I struggle a bit is the YouTube thing self because I get myself in front of a thing with the, just with the camera and you're talking to yourself and you and you realize in terms of – I mean, it's nothing new for you. You've done TV and radio for years. Is that energy that you've got to yeah. give and how it doesn't come through the mic. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a weird thing. And, and look, I mean, I've been encouraged. Raymond's been – oh, sorry. <laughs> Raymond's been like the big encourager, yeah? He keeps on, yeah. keeps on, on my case and you as well. And I appreciate that a lot. Um and the thing is, to me, is just it's just to make sure that you do that and keep the content going. Yeah, um, it's been great. I'd like to see how it grows. I'm not sure how it grows, but um, I suppose we all have to evolve. I mean, if I think back when I started in '97, I used to write a 400 word article. I'd go to the training, go back to the office, punch it out in the computer, and I'd go home. And the next day, it would be, and that would be it. That would yeah. be your job. Nowadays, you you tweeting, you Instagramming, you TikToking, you all of those things, and it's it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> so, I think the fact of the matter is, though, and Ray and I feel very strongly about this. People want to hear what you have to say because of your credibility, because of your your track record of of stories, your relationships with the people in the know. I mean, you've got a great relationship with Rusty uh, that goes way back. You know, and, and it's access, and people want to know what Brendan now says. So I, I say keep it up, man. Yeah, I tell you, it's it's, it's different, though. And, and I mean, my, I, always, I, always, I always laugh because I always think to myself that old thing of that, what's it, that an opinion's like an arsehole, everyone's got one, you know? Um, <laughs> that sort of sticks in my mind at times. And I think, you know, what makes your opinion so great that you want to You're an it? important arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, no, but I mean, it's, it's not to blame. It's not to, to do that, but I mean, there are – and, and you guys know in every sphere there are people who almost get all the attention because they shout the loudest. And and sometimes I sit there and I think, I don't want to be like that. I, yeah. um, I try and give my views and you can agree with you, don't agree with them. And uh, I think the thing is as well, it's just, it's just a weird – it's a weird thing to be alone with a camera. Um, and, I, and I, I'm still getting used to that. And, and But things are changing and you have to yeah. get used to it. So Yeah, in the age of influences and – you know, mobile phones being what they are these days, everyone is a content creator. Yeah. But I think where the difference comes is what you have to say. It's interesting because I, I've been sort of journalism's evolving a lot. And I mean, when I started in what's now is, is chalk and cheese. And uh, I was looking the other day and I was, I was watching a show, one of the American shows, where they said um, 
the strangest thing about the decline of the big media organizations, et cetera, is that you're finding more and more that journalists are becoming their own brand. Now, I hate that word. And I know it's a, it's a huge influencer thing that you say you have to be your own brand. Yeah. But it is, is a true thing that those with, with um, some sort of credibility um, become their own brand, that you'd rather go see what Sia says yeah. than um, you know, go and just open X, Y, and Z website who's probably copied and pasted from somebody else again. That's so. true. This is so true. Um, the other day we had Mandy Weiner on uh, the show, and she was saying she didn't want to talk about Oscar Pistorius. And, and, and bear with me here. Um, she says that there was a fatigue level. It got to a point where it was toxic, uh, and she gave us some pearls. And that uh, episode is, I think, it's out soon, right? If it's not out already. Out today. So thanks to everyone who's liked and subscribed and watched that one. Uh, also on Spotify and iTunes. But Brendan, you found yourself in the middle of that Oscar Pistorius case writing daily. Um, just take us there. Just sort of because it it's the biggest yeah. case that the sporting world has seen apart from potentially other things. But from us South African point of view, it changed so much. I think I think the weirdest thing to me because I I had a very different role in the Oscar Pistorius thing. Uh, just the background. I knew Oscar obviously before that. Um, we had done several features on him at the Pretoria News when he was a youngster coming up. I also did a bit of freelance work for for a PR company with the uh, disabled championships where I helped them out with the media. Mm. So often, what would happen uh, more more than once, he'd run his race. I'd be asked to go fetch him and bring him across the media and sort of see him in his best and worst states where, where things have gone well or haven't gone well on the track. And um, he was quite a volatile person back then. Um, I think like everybody, we were shocked by the news. Um, and I didn't actually – I mean, I was watching it from afar. I'm a rugby journal. Yeah. And uh, I got this call from uh, a colleague, Julian Rodemer, um, who said uh, he, he was supposed to do some work for an overseas organization. Um, would I be able to cover the two weeks of the trial? Because it was going to be two weeks. <laughs> That's what we thought. That's what we thought, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so I said yes, and I thought, okay, I could wrangle it, be in the court and still do my rugby. And it was difficult. But um, uh, for me, it was different because there are people, and I think in Mandy's case, Mandy's very much front and center. That's her thing. Yeah. That's her and I her remember. And Barry Bateman. Yeah, I was going to say Barry. Much, I worked yeah. with Barry at Pretoria News as well. Great journalist, same sort of thing. And they obviously got swept up in, in the limelight. And I just remember Barry's Twitter numbers just exploded with 100,000 or something. <laughs> and they suddenly were being interviewed by everybody. And, and suddenly there was all these overseas journos uh, with us. Uh, and and, and I was, it was quite weird for me because I was almost like, it was almost like sitting on the outside watching them all. And I mean, I still did my work, yeah. etc. But because I didn't really, this wasn't my daily bread, bread and butter. It wasn't maybe as toxic for me. Yeah. I think, like everybody else, I would have been sitting at home watching the trial anyway. Yeah. Um, so I was very interested to see what happened. Um, and the court, you were in the court, right? Well, we were in court B. Um, oh, I see. There, I there's, see. there was two courts set up because there were so many journalists. Yeah, it was madness. Yeah, only a few could get in the court. Oh, but court B, they had screens set up yeah. for us, etc. And that also suited me because I didn't really want to be on TV the whole time sitting in the court in case uh, my employers at that stage realized I wasn't, I wasn't out in the rugby field. But, um, yeah, it, it was, it was interesting. It was very interesting. And between the sessions, uh, people like Harry Nell and them came out and they came, spoke to us. And so you learned a lot more behind the scenes. 
I, I personally, I've, I've got a lot of respect for people who work in courts and crimes and stuff. I think it would kill me. Yeah. Because there's so often, and in that case, um, you still got the the feeling that what they know and what they say in the court are probably two different things. Uh, but like any good prosecutor, etc., unless you can prove it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of things we found out, and I ended up working for six months in there for the uh, New York Daily News of all people. I tell you a very, and it's a, it's a, it's not a great story, but given the subject matter, because we're talking about obviously a sure. murder case, etc. Of course. But um, I, I eventually, uh, you, you've been to my bar. I readed my bar on the money that the New York Daily News made. Nothing wrong with that. We nicknamed it the Oscar Lapa, but uh, <laughs> it's terrible. We, it's an impressive structure yeah. when you put it that way. So, but, uh, so there was one good thing that came out of that. But yeah, it, was, it, it got toxic at times. But I was lucky enough that because it wasn't my daily work, I, yeah. I wasn't every day going out. I, in fact, the way the, the daily news worked and – it's very strange because very different to how South African newspapers worked. Um, I would write my copy because it'd be middle of the night back in New York, mm-hmm. and I'd do everything for them, and then I'd send it to this guy Cory, and Cory was a rewriter. Okay. And Cory rewrote it in tabloid style, and um, I still remember there was one headline because I still got <laughs> the prosecutors came to me the next day and they said, "Is this yours?" Because it was obviously they got all the articles yeah, from around the world. Right. And uh, Corey had rewritten my article and it had said nothing like this, but it was uh, something when Oscar got um, sick in the courtroom in the bucket and the whole story, uh, they wrote the intro was something like, he's a killer with no appetite for murder. <laughs> Which is a, it's a brilliant line. It's a brilliant line, yeah. But I never wrote it. <laughs> wow. But it appeared under my byline. It got me quite a bit of flack from some of the <laughs> sort of people. That, but yeah, it was just, it was one of those situations where I think if it was my main beat, yeah. uh, it would, would have eventually got to me because it was just relentless the whole time. I didn't have to stand around like everybody when Oscar came in, they all mobbed him, yeah. etc. I didn't have to do that. I just had to sit in, and I, I could easily have been sitting at home doing it. Yeah. But uh, it was fascinating being in the courtroom, but I'm glad I'm rather next to a rugby field. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Brendan, we're about to wrap up. Uh, what does 2024 look like for you? I mean, 2023, the books come out. Congrats on that. Please don't forget, it's out now at all the bookstores, good and bad. So check it out now. <laughs> um, what's next for you? Well, this year was interesting because this year, as I said, I mean, I, uh, the YouTube channel sort of exploded over the World Cup, uh, which was nice. Um, we started the podcast, um, which has been a you know, good a good sort of uh, labor to do to keep myself busy a lot of the time. And I wrote the book. So um, I must admit it's a bit weird. The whole – the year feels a bit surreal in terms of where we've been. Um, I think anybody who knows me away from rugby, I love to travel. Um, yeah, you've been to some amazing places. <laughs> uh, hopefully get the chance to travel more. Hopefully the RAND – Allows you to get the chance to travel. More. <laughs> I think everybody knows that 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 hassle. Um, uh, and yeah, just new things, new challenges. I think uh, to me, uh, I think this year challenged me in a lot of ways, and that was a lot of great. And I had some great support systems as well. Um, and hopefully, the next year is the same. And, and just, you just grow more, and you. 
Hopefully somewhere next year I'll be sitting on the beach somewhere sipping a cocktail. Yeah. Or some wine. Oh, some wine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I'm very big into my wine, as you know. I know so. That's a podcast <laughs> so. for another day. Yeah. <laughs> Brendan Nell, thank you so much. Keep up the tremendous work. I'm such a huge fan of your work. Um, thank you for always being available, and I wish you a great festive season, and I hope you sell millions of copies. No, thanks. Uh, I very, feel very privileged to be here. I've seen some of the guests you've had on, yeah? Uh, some big names so it's nice being here I just like talking to people who inspire me so, and you do that sir so thank you very much Cheers, thanks for watching uh, have a wonderful festive season be safe out there and to everyone who's liked and subscribed we really appreciate it take care